feel the burn? I feel, I'm feeling the burn. Feeling it a little bit, yeah. As long as it's not Biden and he's not sniffing your hair. Oh, that's don't ever say that again. That's so nasty. You Why? know about that, right? Yes, I that, know about that, that. Joe Biden and all those pictures of him like leaning in, yeah, did sniffing you, people's hair. And you saw that thing where he was talking about how kids like to pet his leg hair or something. What is it with him and hair? It was gross. Whatever it was, I mean, it just was. I hate that we nasty. had to start the episode with that. <laughs> it's supposed to be about Bernie. Well, I know, but Bernie, Joe Biden, Elizabeth Warren—they're all so close to each other now. Can anybody really tell them apart anymore? I mean, not with all of them pushing Medicare so hard, so, you know. Which is perfect for our topic today. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of What's the Res? My name is Josh Herring. My name is Ethan Doves. Today, we are here to talk about the Coolidge Foundation's resolution for the March 7th tournament happening at our school, Daly's Academy in Rollsville, North Carolina. Uh, Ethan, what's the res? The United States should adopt Medicare for all, thus instituting a single-payer system of health care. This one's kind of fun. It is wordy. This is a wordy resolution. This is definitely a longer one. It is. I know we had a lot of fun yesterday working with some of our middle school students on trying to get them to grasp the intricacies of Medicare, much less Medicare for all. Medicare is one of those things that you can take it at a very simple and just high up superficial level, or you could take it at a really detailed, like convoluted level. It's like, it's easy to understand in different levels, I guess you could say. I don't know. It just gets more confusing as you dig into it. It does, which maybe is probably one of the big appeals of, of going from a really convoluted system that very few people understand in totality to a simple system that at least makes a lot of sense on paper. I mean, it's great for a debate topic because the more you put into it, the more you get out of it. So, so true. Well, in this episode, I think we're going to start with three key terms, and it looks like we've got five arguments on AF and four arguments on NAG, and then we'll talk about some closing thoughts. All right, let's do it. Let's talk about terms. All right, so the first word that that leaps out to me at least is the verb adopt. We're here talking about a legislative term. So we're suggesting that the United States should adopt a legislative program. The program is called Medicare for All. We'll get there in a second. But I think it's important to keep in mind, especially for our younger listeners, that this is following the Obamacare legislation of, uh, oh goodness, is that 2012, 2013? It's been a little while ago now, but we, this is not the first time there has been an attempt to pass a comprehensive healthcare legislative bill that would provide healthcare for everyone who doesn't currently have healthcare, though Medicare for All goes past where Obamacare did in a lot of ways. But I think that's what I'm seeing in the word adopt. Uh, any, anything to add there? Nope. This is just adopting a legislative measure. We're instituting a policy. Not to be confused with policy debate because we don't want that to happen to Coolidge too. But that's a story for another time. So I'm looking at Medicare for All, which is just a brand new health care program going off of sort of the precedent that Obamacare just set out for the whole business of health care or lack of business, I guess you could say. Um, uh, basically, it's just it's – we already have Medicare. We have Medicaid. We have a patchwork of different – healthcare systems and providers, but Medicare is attempting to synthesize all of those things and make it just one universal program that everyone pays into and everyone benefits from. Which I think is probably important for terminology's sake that the Coolidge packet specifies that Medicare for all is quite different than just Medicare. Yes. So Medicare is, is one existent healthcare option for folks who qualify for it, but the program Medicare for all is literally replacing private health insurance. It's replacing veterans yep. benefits. It's replacing the pay out of your pocket system. It's going to look a lot more like the British national health insurance plan where or Canada, uh, yeah. kind of Canadian, Canada, but I think, so. I think it would look more like the, in the British model. If you walk into the hospital, they pretty much give you whatever you need and you don't, from your point of view as the person going to the hospital, it's all free. But, of course, it's not all free, as we'll get into. Everybody's paying for it in a little bit. But what about the, what about the single-payer part? What, what's, who's the single-payer, Ethan? So it just means that the government is the only one buying goods. And the word for that the Coolidge Packet has is monopsony. It's kind of like the opposite of monopoly. In a monopoly, there's one seller of goods and services. And then in a monopsony, there's only one buyer of goods and services, which is Medicare for All. I've never heard that word before. This is a new word I used for it me. in my online application video, so <laughs> that's how I know. I looked at the package. Monopsony. Monopsony. Okay. One Mon buyer of goods and services, yeah. So, so it just, I guess it's just important to note there's already a whole patchwork of different healthcare systems. You were talking about Medicaid. You need to be of a certain age or older. Medicare, you need to qualify, whether it's financially um, or in, in different ways, you can qualify for it. And then Medicare for All is just attempting to give healthcare to everyone, whether, and there's no qualification system. You just have to pay into it. 
which is also going to be significant because that's a pretty big difference. Medicare for all will cover everybody, pre-existing conditions, age, irrelevant. Everybody's covered under this plan, which is going to cause a lot of trouble for the math behind insurance. Yeah, and it also poses a lot of questions about who gets to keep what type of health care that they want. Because certain proponents of Medicare for All, mainly Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, are arguing for plans that encapsulate everybody. So the goal is to have everybody on Medicare for All. There's no more privatized insurance. You can't – it's like it's the keep your doctor phrase that everyone talks about. Um, it's everybody's under this one system. Joe Biden's a little bit lighter on this type of thing where he's saying you can keep your plan if you want your plan. You have Medicare for All if you want Medicare for All. So there's all different sorts of variations of this. But I'm assuming that the Coolidge Packet wants – for this resolution's purposes, the more Bernie Sanders-oriented plan. We're looking at Medicare for all. We're done with private insurance. I think so. I think yeah. that's, a, that's a fair bet. Well, let's get into the affirmative arguments. And I mean, I think for, for younger listeners, it's probably important to spend a moment on the status quo before yeah. we go into this. And I think the, the only thing I'd mention on the status quo is that I think everybody across the aisle on both parties would agree that healthcare as we have it in the United States today is simultaneously – a remarkable system in the sense that we can handle just about anything that happens in terms of human health, mm-hmm. with a few exceptions uh, and, and so on. Uh, and for, but most things that happen to people, it's not that difficult to find care. But the other piece of that is that when parents and adults go to the go to either go to the doctor or the clinic or whatever. It is still really expensive, and even when you have health insurance, it feels really expensive. Uh, so the question at hand is, could we arrange health care in such a way that it actually was not mo- that, that expensive if we spread the cost out across 360 million Americans, or however many citizens we have in this country? And I'm going to be referring to the Coolidge Packet a lot in this episode, too. If you want more information about the expenditure of, or not necessarily the expenditure, but how much you'd have to pay going to the hospital with private insurance versus Medicare versus Medicaid. Appendix D in the Coolidge Packet is the place to go. There's a graph right there. And we'll put a link to that packet in the show description. Yes. So that'll be there. Okay, Ethan, I know you wanted to handle our first AF argument. What yeah. do we need to know about drug companies? So this was after hanging out with the middle schoolers the other day. Everyone has a general bad taste in their mouth about Medicare for all. So I was trying to vouch for the affirmative, but I stumbled upon the first argument in the Coolidge Packet, which is talking about drug companies. So the scenario basically goes like this. If once we have a monopsony scenario, so we're assuming that we've adopted Medicare for all, what happens? There's one buyer of goods and services. It just so happens that that buyer is the government and they don't want to pay, you know, skyrocketed price for drugs. So say insulin costs a thousand dollars a shot. Now that the government, the government is the one purchasing that they have the incentive to tell drug companies to lower their prices. So it ends up driving the cost of drugs down because the government's the one buying it, so they don't want to pay this high prices, which is one of the main arguments that I'd see the F going for in this resolution. That is really interesting, because I think the opposite would be the actual effect. You would think. Go ahead, make your case. At, at least when the other domains where the government has become a de facto buyer, I'm thinking primarily of higher ed, it has driven the cost way up. Because over the last 50 years, ever since 1945 and the passage of the GI Bill, the U.S. federal government has been in the business of subsidizing people's college education with really cheap loans. And the result of that is that colleges have really gotten addicted to federal money. So they can put their tuition at $45,000 a year knowing that you, when you apply to come there as a student in a couple years, can get a loan for that. And so they can get all the money. And so I wonder if it will, in fact, have the reverse effect, whereas that because the government can always raise taxes to raise more revenue is seen as sort of an infinitely supplied with a blank, a blank checkbook sort of customer. I can see this being one of those arguments that sounds really good on paper and, and nobody can predict the future. So we're not really sure how this would work out. Um, in reality, but if you're interested in this argument, it's number one on the Coolidge packet, packet under AF. And there is a chart, unfortunately, um, Josh printed this in black and white, and it's a color-coded line graph. So it makes it a little more difficult to find out who exactly spends the most on healthcare. That's what but, I get for trying to save co- save on save on color ink. My bad, my bad. But spring for color printing next time. Yeah, so I, it's fine. I think the argument makes sense that if the government is the one buying drugs and drugs are expensive, then the government's incentivized to negotiate with drug companies of how we can make these products less expensive. So it logically makes sense. And there's some um, some facts and some different things that you could quote for that for evidence as far as that goes under that argument. So I think that's the most logical argument the affirmative can make. Okay. That's the one I would go for. 
Or will be going for if I go to that tournament. Yeah, yeah, it's true. I guess so. Yeah, well, we're, I know you're well, still. Now you know my case. Yep. So. Well, I, I know you're still waiting to hear back on uh, one of the um, from the last Coolidge online contest. If I remember, that's correct. true. Yep. yep. Still waiting to hear back for all those things. So okay. We'll see tournament schedule. Yep. So, AF argument number two, uh, I think we ought to consider is that healthcare, since the healthcare system as it is, is way too expensive. Uh, and I would just look at two subpoints under this argument. Um, the first is that there is an illusion – insurance companies provide an illusion of getting a bargain where when you have – if you have an ins- if you have insurance coverage, um, it, you have the – it's this, it creates the sense that you are only paying a certain amount of money each month for healthcare services until you go and use your insurance plan. And then depending on how it's constructed, you then have uh, an additional cost associated with that. But insurance companies then offer services that are really high uh, is the other, the other piece of that. Secondly, hospitals can then hide different costs behind medical terminology, private negotiations, and emergency needs. If you come into a hospital and have a particular medical need, um, the hospital helps you. They, they deal with that emergency then and there, and they don't worry about the cost. If a doctor needs to know uh, what exactly your, what's going on with blood, they order a set of blood tests. It's after everything is done that the patient is then presented with the bill. And this is where we really get into trouble because it's really easy to either have something that doctors are trying to figure out, they don't understand it, so they'll run a hundred of different tests, each of which cost money, or you have something that has to be dealt with an emergency situation, and suddenly you ha- you say yes to everything if they ask you, or you're just you you just swallow the bill at the end if they just hand you the bill. But the the cost of healthcare seems to be prohibitively high, especially on people who have low levels of financial resources. This could fit into the pre-existing conditions thing, too, where if you have pre- pre-existing conditions, then you need insurance as much as you, if you can, that you can get of it, in fact, because you can be coming in for tests every week or even multiple times a week. And that means insurance costs, you need to swallow that bill a lot. So that's one of the main arguments for Medicare for All as well. And I guess it's important to note that... Um, the Coolidge packet once again hooks us up, hooks us up with vocabulary. So the cost that you pay is copay, and then the insurance company will pay the rest. Just to be consistent. Yep, that that is true. And uh, one or, does it does it deal with a deductible system? Yeah, it, okay. yeah, it does. So that deductible system is looking at usually uh, there's an amount that insurance policyholders have to pay, and after that, anything else that comes up is covered. And in one sense, that's great. If you have a thousand dollar deductible, anything after a thousand dollars, your insurance company pays for completely. Man, it is hard to come up with that thousand dollars when you go to the doctor each time and have to pay that. And especially if it's like unexpected too. Right. Uh, well, that that often uh, I, I did some digging today uh, as part of argument number three, and I was fascinated to learn that according to uh, CNBC.com in. Uh, about a year ago, on February 11th of 2019, they conducted a survey of people who had gone bankrupt in the previous year. And of those who had gone bankrupt, 66.5 cited medical cost as a key mm. factor in their bankruptcy. So they argued from that that they think it's likely that medical bankruptcy is actually the largest category of financial bankruptcy in this country. Again, getting to kind of the argument that the system that we have, while it's great in some ways, is certainly not perfect. And then could Medicare for all, in fact, be better than our current system? And so one important thing to note there is that it's not like the government with Medicare for all is opening its own hospitals. We're going to have like the U.S. hospital and North Carolina hospital of whatever. Like these are still private hospitals. It's just the government that's paying the bill for them, which is the Medicare program. And then the government goes in and pays whatever place that you visited um, to go to to get your, your health covered. But one other thing to consider about deductibles is that Deductible. The reason deductibles are there is to disincentivize you from going to the hospital. Mm-hmm. So, because if you don't have a deductible or, or a copay or anything, then you could visit the hospital every day, and then the insurance co- the insurance will just cover it every single time. So, for every little thing, you could go in. And I'm wondering what the deductible would be for Medicare for all if you're the one paying into the system in the first place, which I'm assuming would be nothing. Am I right in saying that? 
I think in one sense you are. I mean, I, I can't imagine there being like a monthly bill that the U.S. federal government sends out. Like, here's your Medicare for all deductible payment. Or, or collectively, if you had to pay for everyone else's deductible. Well, I mean, but the only way that this will happen, and uh, I think it was in the second, it was the second Democratic primary debate, the moderators forced Senators Warren and Sanders to admit that this, this plan would require raising taxes. Oh, yeah. Bernie's in the first <clears throat> presidential debate, we were talking about it on our episode. Episode that we did about that, Bernie said he wanted to raise the the tax on the middle class yep. to sixty to sixty five percent. It was one of those, but either way, it's it's a tax of more than half on the middle class Which just is, for to pay for Medicare for all. But the the goal, the premise is that we're all going to have free health care. That that's so, the premise, and that is the. I, is I it think, worth the cost, or well, can the, the cost even cover it? That's a shockingly high number. That is, is and yeah. that's that's the same folks in the tax bracket that are currently in the fifteen to twenty five percent tax bracket. So you're talking about more than doubling their tax burden. Mm-hmm. Um, now, one thing on this that I think may may help. Uh, so I would tag this as argument four if anyone is listening to kind of use this to help structure their case. Um, would be the desire for equity or fairness or justice. Um, and to to make this argument, uh, I'll refer listeners back to a previous episode way back in season one. No, I'm sorry, our summer episodes, our first round oh, yeah? of summer episodes, uh, where I did an episode about justice and particularly focusing on John Rawls. John Rawls is a uh, Harvard political scientist, and he came up with a very famous phrase in, that he published a series of books about. The phrase is this, justice as fairness. The idea for Rawls was that the best way that we can really imagine justice, instead of convoluted um, philosophical weighing, instead, we should simply take a step back and imagine what kind of society would we want to live in if we didn't know which position in society we would be. It's, It's one thing to imagine a society where you're the king or the queen, but what if you were a peasant? What rights, what privileges, what status in that society would you want the peasant to have if you were if you were going to be that peasant? And this, for John Rawls, is kind of really how we imagine justice. He called this thought experiment the veil of ignorance. And he argued that when policymakers are creating laws, they should begin by trying to put on the veil of ignorance. They have to imagine themselves as being in a, this society that their bill is going to create – in such a way that they don't know if they'll have power or be powerless. Will they be wealthy or will they be poor? And what position would they give to all the people who live under that bill if they were going to be in that position? And in doing that, then we're going to be that's the be- we're going to have the best route to create a fair society. And for anyone who's interested in listening to that episode, it is episode from season one, episode 14. You can go to www.whatstheres.com, tap the search bar, and type in uh, 1.14, and it should just come right up. Perfect. And I feel like this is a good time to note that we, since we've been studying John Stuart Mill's in um, philosophy class, that he has a, he thinks that basically there are many positive evils in the world, and we can progressively reduce this through careful action. And in this case, this would be considered a... Um, government action towards healthcare specifically. So we're talking about the positive evil would be the cost of healthcare. You label it whatever you want. The cost healthcare's costs are too high. Drug prices are too high. Um, healthcare system as it is is far too expensive. Whatever this may be, these would be considered his positive evils. And what we can do, the affirmative stance would be, is take action to slowly eliminate whatever positive evils we can and make the world a better place progressively. Which is really what wealth, uh, what Medicare for all is intending to do. Medicare for all is looking at the landscape of people in the United States and saying, look, some people have vast amounts of personal money, and those people can afford all kinds of health care privileges that those who don't have that kind of money simply can't afford. And Medicare for all is an attempt to spread out the cost of health care across every citizen of the United States. And then if we spread the cost out, it's less for each than we are paying right now, and then everybody is entitled to health care, such that if we are following kind of that Rawlsian or that John Stuart Mill's approach, we can say that positive evil of a lack of equity is reduced, and it's fair that everyone has equal access to high-quality health care. So I wouldn't necessarily label this as maybe an argument for the affirmative case, but this is certainly the affirmative mindset, is that we're concerned about 
increasing justice, increasing everybody's health care. Um, I'm not going to say rights, but the Democratic candidates do fundamentally believe that health care is a right for everyone to have. So that's certainly something that you could go off of. You're, you're being very generous to say that they believe this is a right. They say it all the time. Oh, I know. Yeah. That doesn't mean they believe it. Okay, well, fine. They, they say They it. certainly they say, say it. it. Yeah. I will, I'm totally right. with you. No, that's fine. You can, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> they say that health care is a right. Um <laughs> And because of that, what we're trying to do is institute Medicare for all so that everybody has access to that right, which would be increasing justice as fairness as far as we, the government can in society. So if we happen to have any LD listeners, uh, you will probably recognize that that would function as a value. As a value. Yeah. And uh, we would probably set this up as what? Rawlsian justice as our value and uh, Medicare for all as our value criterion or healthcare equity yeah, as our value util. criterion. Util would util? Totally, yeah, greatest happiness, greatest people oh guess what it's everyone oh <laughs> there we go there we go but this is coolidge we're not this working on value forget the, scratch that past 30 seconds okay so all of that as context to really then hopefully set up the fifth point under af um how do we do all this because the that and this is really where affirmative needs to own the fact that this will require a raise in taxation um because this is the part that you we can't get away from what you'll need to make this happen is a new tax that is going to be spread across all the people who are now participating in Medicare for All. But the only way this can work is that if the new tax is less on average than the average person is currently paying in health care per year, uh, which, as the Coolidge Packet tells us, is $11,072 per year. So as long as you are taxed less than that and you no longer have private health insurance, private health care costs, this theoretically should work out to be a net savings for individuals. That sounds really good on paper. Doesn't that, it? That sounds way too good to be true. <laughs> That's just like a red flag alarm going off in my head, but which kind of makes me think about how the affirmative is really going to hold up their position at all because in Lincoln-Douglas debate, the main issue, this would be called a solvency, which is basically saying, will this actually work? And I think Neg has a lot of ground on the solvency part of it because Neg can just say it's too expensive, too expensive, too expensive. But don't lose hope in the the affirmative yet because all of us are going to be arguing affirmative on this. So we got to learn how to do it. Um, Are we going to, so we can, I'm going to talk about framework or not like framework, but like affirmative mindset and we'll just do the whole Neg together so we can get all together. For the affirmative strategy, the be- I think the best thing you can do is pick whatever arguments you like, whichever ones you find most compelling. I personally find drug companies really compelling, um, and the f- I think fairness and justice would be a good way to sort of frame that. Try to focus on ways that the government is going to save itself money with this program because the negative team can say – that we're going to need to increase the tax rate this much, we're going to, this is going to cost us this much by this date, all of that speculation, right? So if you can call the negative on saying, hey, that's just speculation, and while the numbers may be relatively accurate, the plan also includes areas of saving money. Like, for example, the drug company's argument. If the government's the sole buyer of drugs now, then it has the incentive to get drugs pr- drug prices reduced so that it's not paying as much. So progressively, kind of that idea of removing positive evils over time, as drug prices get lower, you're getting taxed less because the government doesn't need to spend as much of your money to get them. So we're saving more money over time, which is just one small part. Again, there's really no way to calculate that. You could possibly look to Obamacare to see if anything like that ever happened in the past. Try to find ways that the affirmative world is saving money so that the negative solvency impact doesn't hit you as hard. That's my affirmative two cents, I guess yep. you could say. I, I, I think they're a good two cents, though. Like you said a minute ago, I'm having red flags going up all over the place because so many times in a debate, the affirmative is calling for a change in the status quo that is just obviously not going to work. And it's one of the hardest things in debate, uh, especially if you if you are if you if you lean a bit more conservative and you're more skeptical about the the effectiveness of policy to cause beneficial change. It's, it's, it's tricky to kind of get in there. So I think that mindset is helpful. No, for the sake of arguing affirmative well, that's really the mindset that you have to take. Yeah, and there's plenty of, pe- there's plenty of people, in fact, that buy Medicare for All and, literally, and say that this could be a viable plan. And I think arguments one and four is also again that we discussed. And we could um, – I mean, just like there's drug companies, mm-hmm. healthcare system as it is, bank, medical bankruptcy – there's good logic behind all of these things. It's the solvency that makes people skeptical, which is why I think that that's the main point to defend against in your case. So that's the, that's the app defense is like, hey, even though we're going to be costing a lot of money in these areas, we save here, we save here, we save here, we stack all of these together. We can see Medicare for all. While it would be more expensive, we're 
benefiting more people. Mm-hmm. So it's it's the basic logic of Medicare for all. It's the basic logic of any healthcare system. And but Medicare is attempting to synthesize all these systems. That's another argument. I will say that really quick. Last thing on F, um, unless you want to add something after. One of the Coolidge packet arguments, I don't remember which one, I think it's two or three or three or four, says that by synthesizing all of these different welfare programs, we make a more complicated system more simple. And what happens when more complicated systems get more simple is that we save money. So we save money there, we save money by driving drug costs down, so our tax rates will go down eventually. All of these things are speculative things that you could say where the affirmative tends to save money. So you can you can save yourself a little bit in the constructive speech on solvency if you consider these things while making arguments. I think that's a really good point, and it's certainly one that our school has found to be true. I know I've heard Mr. Luddy make that same argument about if we can take a system that public education does in a very complicated way and find a way for our private school to streamline that, mm-hmm. um, case in point, our a lot of schools are top-heavy on administration, but our school is very lean on administration, and that's in part because they're very picky about hiring people and admin who can manage to somehow do an awful lot of things. And so that streamlining makes it more cost-effective. I am very skeptical about the government's ability to do that. I'm quite confident the private sector can do that because it has a market incentive to do so. But I'm very skeptical the government has that kind of incentive to le- uh, create those mm-hmm. lean systems that you're describing. You're relying on policymakers to be able to make the right decision about a policy that will literally affect everyone, which is what government does. And the alternative is to have many private companies basically send lobbyists to the government asking, like, can you please reduce drug prices? Which, lobbying works. I'm not saying that it doesn't work. But wouldn't it be nice to just have the government with their iron fist come down and be like, hey, no more $1,000 insulin. And it's just nice. No, that would not be nice. I'm trying to help the affirmative. I know you are, but no, case. no, no. Let, that, that means we really should move on to the neg, because I'm, I'm... All right, I'm, we, move we, on to we got to get there. Okay. Yeah, we're um, 30 minutes in. We haven't hit neg yet. This is a good episode. I hope I hope so. Um, we, we've been bantering a little bit, so we'll see. Yeah, we love um, refuting the affirmative while we give the affirmative. Oh, goodness. Okay. Well, I, I have trouble. The older I've gotten, the more libertarian I've become, and... I know you don't watch Parks and Rec, I don't think. I've but. seen, like, the first season. Okay. Well, Ron Swanson has become my hero as far as, <laughs> yeah, like, well, government relate, efficacy. Yeah. Okay, moving on. Let's talk about negative arguments. Um, my first argument on neg would be looking at the fact that Medicare for All is a giant instance of market interference. Ethan, do you remember how the market interference idea works? Yep, the whole Keynesian, like, thing that we always go through. Yeah. Sort of. I, yeah. I think it's Keynes. I'm, I'm going to go more of an Austrian route this time. But, uh, or as in Austrian arguing against market. Yes, yes gotcha. exactly. All right, yeah, go yeah. So I do this in two pieces. I'd first look at the fact that affirmative is calling for a massive change in the economy. Uh, this is an enormously complex segment of our economy and our culture. Currently, we have thousands of people who are employed in the healthcare sector who work for privately owned healthcare companies. Uh, here in Raleigh, there uh, the you've got the Wake Med system, you've got Rex Hospital, and I, I don't entirely know. Yeah, Duke, got Duke. Health centers. Yeah. Um, there's the UNC centers, and mm-hmm. it's this kind of and and it's the big tangled web of public, private, businesses, grants, and organizations. It's all kind of intermingled. All of that would be changed. Um, Private companies would be gone. Private medical facilities and personnel are no longer private. They're now really public employees because they are being paid by the state. Now, from there, I would look at – I'd want to look at precedents – and the only precedence we have for this in the American in, in the American economy is Obamacare, and it famously did not work. What we've seen over, since Obamacare was passed is a fifteen uh, minimum fifteen percent. I've heard as high as fifty percent, but we've seen a massive increase in insurance premiums with the rise of Obamacare. I'll mention more about that in our next argument. But all of this gets at an Austrian economic principle that looks at what exactly prices are. And prices, so even when we look at healthcare and say, my goodness, the healthcare system is too crazy, it's too expensive, it's too high. Well, an Austrian economist would look at that and say, that price is an information information system. It's information between the seller and the buyer. And it's a meeting point between what the seller is willing to sell at and what the buyer is willing to buy at. And in a completely free economy where both buyer and seller have an equal meeting ground, the price is an indication of the value that the buyer has and the seller is willing to pay. 
Well, what happens when we have this kind of massive legislative change is that the market signals get all screwed up. Instead of there being a clear indication from people, uh, you've been using the insulin example. So let's yep. say uh, instead of the person who has di- the man who has diabetes, diabetes communicating, I have to have this, and yes, I'm willing to pay what it costs, and the company saying, okay, we've put a lot of money into developing an easily accessible insulin product, and we need to make our money back, and we're willing to meet you at one thousand dollars a shot, and that's that may be what the market bears. Well, now suddenly this legislation is passed and the government by legislative fiat says fixes a price point for insulin. It says insulin will be sold at $200 a shot. Well, you can't just mandate that a company make that medicine at that price point because if the company that makes it is not making a profit, they will close down. (laughs) And so that will literally – that messes up the communication system enormously when we put all of this governmental interference in there. What so, do you yeah, make of that argument? Well, I I just think as far as the Austrian economics things here, we're arguing on fundamentals here. And we're tying this to the basic notions of capitalism. that Everyone wants to act in their own self-interest. And when everyone acts in their own self-interest, we see the greatest net benefit. And that we don't really need the government to take care of us in that sense. It's the, it's like the negative, I guess, overall mindset, you could say. One, when we're using examples with drugs, it's important to note that there's limited competition in the drug industry because drug licenses and licenses for certain types of medicine last for a really long time, and which prevents competitors from basically coming into the market and making the same drug at a lower price and using competition to drive the prices down. So one argument that could flip between the, both the negative and affirmative side, depending on the way you argue it, is that it's not that drug companies are selling these drugs at, at extremely high prices because they need to, it's because they can, because there's no competition to be driving the prices down. So maybe it only takes them $100 per shot of insulin, but they're selling it at $900 more because they can. So either we can try to introduce more competitors by fighting with intellectual property right laws, or we can introduce the government and just say, hey, lower that $900, would you? But either way, that's just an important thing to note, is that drug companies have very tight-held rights around the drugs that they create. So something to consider for both sides of the debate. I think that's really important, and I do want to make sure I don't overstate my case because I'm not trying to say that we currently exist in that imaginary Austrian completely free market. We live in a massively regulated medical Mm -hmm. space such that there has, if there ever was a time when it was completely unregulated, there were also huge abuses that that spurred regulation and trying to correct things for good reason. So it's not the case that we have an unregulated market that this regulation is now going to be confining for the first time. Instead, we're going to put this is putting a new regulation on top of an existent regulation. And that existing regulation is the intellectual property, which allows companies to basically hold a monopoly on drugs. So then we're going to have an, another regulation to force them to lower the prices. At what at what point do you stack so many policies that one you're wasting a lot of money, and two you don't know how to counteract yourself properly, so you find that happy medium? Is basically what Austrian economics is asking. How do we stack, or I guess the question you could say of Keynesian economics rather, which is just the opposing field, is saying how do we stack things in just the right way so we can make the economy work the way we want it to? And you know who would know the answer to that question? Mr. Bonin, Jared Rhodes. Jared Rhodes. Jared yeah. Rhodes. We need to get him on the yeah, show. Yeah, he would totally know the answer. He is literally a – so he, he runs the Coolidge Debate League, but he yeah. is also a health policy professor at um, Dartmouth College. So he, Supplementary interview one? Oh, yeah. Uh, definitely. He literally – I mean he, he teaches health policy, so he would know all that information. Yeah. So, so I'm not going to pretend like I know this stuff. Yeah. I'm just going to try to get my general speculation. Um, and I guess it's a good time to move on to second argument for Ned because mm-hmm. we have – this is getting to be a long episode. Go for it. Second you, argument. You underline this one so you got you got to talk about it first yeah it's not affordable let's be honest with ourselves medicare for all is not affordable and while the affirmative can try to patch this up whatever they whatever way they want they can say we save money here xyz and eventually we're going to get the rates down the way we want we want them to be down medicare for all is probably one of the least solvent things we've seen in any debate resolution for a long time there's a lot of people that think that it is affordable and there's a lot of people say it's not affordable that's up to you to do your own research on that but if you want to get started somewhere i'd recommend the number one neg argument um, on the coolidge packet would be a good place to just find some basic facts how much will medicare for all cost by this year how much we need to increase taxes bernie says 60 percent. i don't know why because the packet says 30 something like 32 percent we would have so um maybe he just wants to make a couple extra bucks 
bucks or whatever. The no burn just wants to burn all my money. That's what it is, Ethan. <laughs> yeah, but, in, but so you can be healthy. That's right. It's good for me if the burn takes all of my money. Yeah, he's, he's doing he's it for burning me. It's, you don't need that excess money. Like, what's, what are you going to use that for? Clearly you're becoming nothing, more unhealthy? Like, must which, be. I wasn't going to buy food or tires for my car yeah. or, 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 or pay or, your mortgage or anything. Or, or put, new, put an improvement on my house. I was going to do something foolish with that money. And now Bernie knows what to do with my money. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I okay. can't even. But basically, Medicare for All, the main argument on both the Coolidge packet and it seems in both of our heads is that Medicare for All is too expensive. The way insurance works is that the healthy must outnumber those using the healthy the policies of health. And when you put everyone in a pool together in a system like that, it's difficult to determine what numbers will fall on either side of that right. spectrum. Now, that's that's a that's a pretty critical argument for the nag. I, I remember my dad explaining this to me because I used to think of insurance as like basically kind of a magic your bill goes down a bit card that he would pull out and like when he handed the the insurance card to the doctor his bill was cut in half he was like no no that's not how it works the way it works is that insurance companies sell a product that is sort of gambling on the fact that people are generally healthy most of the time and so each person who buys an insurance uh, policy or gets an insurance policy through their their company or their work or whatever they're paying an insurance premium every month and then all of that money goes to the insurance company so blue cross blue shield i don't know they must have over a million insurance policies that are bringing in several hundred dollars a month so they've got several hundred million dollars a month that they use to then deal with all of the claims that are made on those policies so hypothetically Let's just say that somebody goes into a hospital and they have a uh, they have a thousand dollar procedure done. There's a, an X ray and a bone is broken and they have to put a cast on it and the bill is a thousand dollars. Well, then run the insurance card. The bill's down to a two hundred dollar copay and Blue Cross Blue Shield pays the eight hundred dollars. This only works if there are more healthy people who are paying premiums than there are sick or injured people who are costing money from the insurance company. I mean, it, at, at one level, the emotions aside, it is all a piece of math dealing with money. <laughs> and if you so Medicare for all is making two premises is now is premised on two things that are going to destroy the math. Um, first, they are accepting everybody not worrying about pre-existing conditions. So if you have pre, a pre-existing condition, say uh, you already, you've been diagnosed with some fatal disease, you can't really get cheap health insurance because you're going to be very expensive for a company to insure. Um, I said two. Pre uh, yep, I said two. I really had one. That that one is uh, with pre-existing conditions. I think will destroy this whole thing. And yeah, if you take this in, just to sort of relate it to a modern political context too. If you're thinking about plans like Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren plan, Elizabeth Warren's plan. Wow, that's difficult to say. If you in <laughs> if you include everybody in the program, it could be likely that you would have more healthy people than sick people that you're covering. But imagine someone like. Uh, something that Joe Biden has been pushing recently is keep your plan if you like your plan and have Medicare for all if you want Medicare for all. This is making me think that all of the people who who desire the service because they have pre-existing conditions would want Medicare for all mm -hmm. under Joe Biden's plan. Sure. But then that would create a scenario where you have more sick people under one plan than healthy people. So the promises that are that are – I guess made under that plan would be even less viable than a full Medicare for all plan. Mm -hmm. So I could see the situation being worse under – do, only doing this halfway. But now that the Coolidge Foundation has effectively universalized it with this resolution, I can see a little bit more ground going to the affirmative on that one. It's, there's more negative ground on solvency and cash flow, but the affirmative can at least try to make a response. So I think this argument is a solid one for Neg. I would also pair it for the fact, don't just go crazy saying it's not going to work because tax rates and future costs and I'm scared of this. Try to pair that with the fact that there's no real return on investment once you pay into the system. And if you're looking for a chart, back, go back to Appendix D on the negative side of the Coolidge packet. is a great place to look. It shows you the current – or I guess it was um, up until 2012. What does Medicare give you? So when you go into the hospital and you put down your Medicare card, how much does it reduce your bill by? And it shows that private health insurance actually pays more of um, – it pays more money into um, whatever health procedure you had done. You okay. got injured. You got sick. Yeah. 
then Medicare will. So imagine universalizing a system like that, adding the entire United States to that program and paying into that program. What would that look like? If you privatize insurance is already better, would Medicare improve or become worse if you added everyone to the system? So don't, don't just talk about how much money is going into it. Talk about how little we're getting out of it because that's the ground the affirmative is going to be harping on. No, that's a great point. Uh, Ethan, do you know the story of the goose that laid the golden egg? Eh, roughly. You go for it. All I'll right. The next one. So uh, this is my third argument on NEG. Um, I, I think this is – I think it's an important one to keep in mind. Uh, so one of my favorite stories – I think this is one of Aesop's fables – is the story of the goose that laid the golden egg. It's very simple. There was a farmer and his wife. They had a magic goose. Each day, the goose would lay a golden egg. And the farmer and his wife were getting a gold egg every day, and this made their lives quite luxurious. So one day, the farmer had a brilliant idea. He thought, hey, wife, I want all the gold. That way we can sell the farm, or we can leave the farm and live in the city and have a big mansion and all this stuff if we have all the gold. So he takes his axe, he goes out, and he kills the goose. Lo and behold... It, from the inside, it is an ordinary goose, and they have just killed their own source of good things. I tell this story because I think it's a good analogy for the United States medical system. Um, as convoluted as it is and as bad a rap as the U.S. medical system has gotten in the press, especially with uh, the Democratic leadership touting these plans to somehow make the medical system better, the U.S. medical system is the envy of the world. Um, we literally have the biggest research laboratories, the most pharmaceutical companies, the universities that are churning out doctors and medical researchers by the thousands every year. We have an immense network of hospitals and clinics, such that and uh, such that we have, and even that stretch out into the rural parts of the United States. It's not just congregated in big cities. We have all of that, and we have a medical education system that is simultaneously capable of handling most ordinary circumstances, but also that is contributing to the ongoing research and development of medical procedures and drugs that every other country in the world wants. They want cures to diseases. They want surgical procedures. That's what the United States is developing. Now, at the same time, all of those things are expensive, but the question that I think is at the heart of this argument is that if we uh, nationalize that whole system, if we take the hospitals, the clinics, the nurses, the doctors, the staff, everything, and turn it all into a wing of the U.S. federal government, is that effectively killing the goose that lays the golden egg? Are we destroying the very system that allows any American citizen who's in need of medical care to for, and for the most part, you can access professional medical care within 24 hours from pretty much anywhere in the country. Um, that's not the case everywhere on the planet. Uh, and if we, if we change this system, what, do we know what we're getting in its place? Could we, in fact, kill the goose and discover that it was only a goose that produced this in a weird way that is not quite understandable, is not quite as rational as the masters with blueprints would have us think? Yeah, and just to sort of finish off that point, one of the main things to look at on the negative side is not only what are we putting into this potential system, but what are we going to get out of this potential system, which is going great from that analogy into sort of the point where you could crystallize the round, I guess you could say, or the main point on the negative side, uh, main mindset on the negative side. Is what, is what would it look like to implement this system? And luckily for the negative side, we have examples of where universal healthcare has been tried before. And the UK is a great example. I know Canada has some similarities that we were talking about earlier. And the Coolidge packet has a lot of evidence showing that when this has been tried in other places before, we see that the healthcare is just not very good quality, is the main thing. So everybody's paying into the system, everybody gets free healthcare. But one of the main things is that it takes so long for everybody to get their procedures done. I know there was one thing where it says that people were put on a really long waiting list for one of one of 15 essential health tests. And part of this could be on um, the elimination of deductibles if there are no deductibles where everyone wants to see the doctor for little things and there's no prioritiza prioritization sure. of who gets what, which could cause all of its own sorts of problems. But the heart of the issue is that everybody's paying into the system and the healthcare quality, there's still healthcare. It's just not the greatest healthcare, which is why people prefer in the United States, or, or at least some people prefer, um, when they don't qualify for Medicare or Medicaid, to have their employer sponsor their health insurance, which is just the employee, whoever they're working for, paying for their private health insurance through their job, um, where you could get a, a much better healthcare. And, part, and that is in part because 
private healthcare has higher um, or lower copay. So they would pay more of your bill than they would make you pay. Um, and I know you know a lot of good examples. Give, how about you give the example of Charlie Gard, which is that one famous example of sure. uh, British healthcare failed? Yep. Okay, yep. go for it. Uh, so I remember this this happened a couple years ago, and I'm, I'm sure we can find the actual articles. They're all over the internet. If you search for Charlie Gard, that's G-A-R-D, um, you'll, you'll find the specific details. So if, I, if I'm off on a detail or two, I apologize. I'm doing this from memory. I've not looked up the story recently. Um, Charlie Gard was a uh, British child. He was, I want to say, about roughly two years old, and he was diagnosed with some really awful illness. And his parents took him to the hospital, and uh, they for for treatment. And the doctors diagnosed him is fatal. And his parents wanted them to do, uh, then wanted to take him home. The doctors said no. They would not. They were committed to not treat him, but then to uh, make him comfortable so that he could die with dignity. And very shortly thereafter, his parents found out there was an experimental treatment in the U.S. Uh, that could possibly save Charlie's life. And the doctors, again, said no. They referred the decision to the British medical authority, whatever board oversees their medical system. And that authority said, no, uh, we will not let you take this British subject to another country for treatment. And this this sparked one of those kind of stories where it seemed like for a couple of days, the entire world and most of the news headlines were consumed with Charlie Gard's fate. What would happen? It was sort of of a drama, but unfortunately, it was a tragedy uh, for for Charlie. Uh, even the the Pope even got involved. He was willing to uh, send a uh, some version of a papal helicopter to airlift Charlie to the Vatican, uh, where the Vatican doctors or the U.S. doctors flown in, one or the other, would oversee this procedure. Uh, long story short, Charlie Gard's life. Uh, he, he died, uh, and in part because the British government was not willing to permit him to receive some level of treatment from a different country. Uh, it, it's one of the stories that reminds me about um, big convoluted systems, um, and, and the, the idea there is that big convoluted systems are great for accomplishing the same thing over and over and over again. Sort of like a factory that always churns out the exact same widget. That factory can be great at widgets, but what happens when you have something a little bit different? The system doesn't work to deal with differences. Um, I remember years ago, I lived in a, a large housing complex, and the, uh, my, my wife and I uh, were given a bird at a wedding. And really? yep, we, uh, we went there and it turns out that the bride and groom were given a bird and they couldn't have a bird in their apartment. So we said, sure, we'll take the bird. Well, we got home and I was thinking, I was like, you know, I think I remember something in the lease agreement. So I look in my lease agreement, lo and behold, there's a specific, there are no pets, none whatsoever. Nothing that is a pet is an animal that might be possibly classified. It was a really stringently written clause, no pets, huge fine. So I called our our uh, property manager and was like, "Look, come on, it's just a bird. Is can't we can't <laughs> we just have a bird?" No, there was no wiggle room whatsoever. Now this is a housing department. It was a little bit subsidized. It it oversaw housing for several thousand students and their families. They were not interested in helping me deal with the bird. They were interested in enforcing their policies. And that's really what I see happening in the British system, and that's what I see happening if we put Medicare for All in place. Um, everything will be covered as long as it's on the list. But what happens when you have something happen to you that's not on the list? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really good way to wrap it up. And really, this whole debate comes down to asking the questions, can we structure a healthcare system to better the lives of more people? And can we trust the government to make decisions for individuals, which is the case with Charlie Gard, where the British government um, tried to make a decision for an individual, but it ended up being the, the wrong decision or the decision, or I guess we couldn't really tell what would happen either way, but it right, seems right. like it was the wrong decision, um, mostly because it's an overhead board that has to deal with a particular scenario like you're talking about. So it really... I think I think it's a good time we're going to do like some overall closers now that the affirmative has to focus on increasing justice for people or at least increasing equity in a healthcare system. So we're we're trying to benefit the most amount of people. We're trying to provide a desirable service to everyone in the United States. And this is the government's obligation to do so. It's part of fairness, part of justice, however you want to word it. We're trying to provide something good to as many people as possible. And that's sort of the overall mindset. But the affirmative also needs to focus on where exactly is this going to save us money so that the negative can't come back and simply just 
wash you out on those points. Think about saving money with drug companies. How are we going to reduce drug prices to make things more fair for people? Or how are we going to make things more affordable over time? What are the, what are the tax rates look like? How can we make this seem like a more viable plan? And what are we going to get be getting as far as return on investment goes? The negative side is entirely a cost-benefit analysis. The negative team is focusing on what exactly has to be put, what does the system look like now? What additionally do we need to put into the system? And what additionally is it going to give us out? That's the essential question that any skeptic of any policy going to be instituted, whether it's in Congress or whether it's hypothetical in debate, has to ask, is what is this action going to cost us and what is this action going to bring us? And that's really where the negative side has all the ground as far as solvency goes, as far as asking questions about how exactly would this play out should we implement this system? And as far as evidence goes, you've got Obamacare as a precedent, and you've got all of the ineffective universal healthcare systems that the world has to offer to dig through for evidence. So it seems like a classic affirmative, slightly idealistic, negative, highly pragmatic sort of resolution. And I think it's a good resolution. There's decent ground on both sides. No, I, I agree completely. I think it should be a real. It should be really fun to debate. I'm looking forward to uh, watching cases come together. The only thing I'd add to that is that you really do on both AF and NEG, you have some basic economic and some political assumptions in play. Uh, affirmative is assuming that it is the government's job to oversee healthcare and that it is the role of the government in some way to manage a sector of the economy. Uh, now, not to say that we should go so far in as socialism or communism. There's a reasonable way to say that there, there may, if you're right and companies are uh, unjustly raising the cost purely for profit at the expense of people's lives as they're selling life-preserving drugs, um, that may be a le- there may be a legitimate case there to make that the government has the right to oversee that sector more stringently. On NEG, I think you're on much firmer ground to really argue that uh, the government does not have the authority of, under the U.S. Constitution to really manage the economy this tightly. Uh, and that certainly you have a you have grounds to argue for limited government and limited economic intervention and that really look at all of the harms that happen when governments step in unjustly to the economy or the national life as a whole. All right. I think that's, I mean, pretty much everything on NEG, everything on AF. That was a good episode. Covered a lot. Coolidge Packet is the best resource to start. They have a huge, um, you know, like, I think it's like two pages, two full pages of background information on what Medicare and Medicaid have looked like, what's the status quo, where are we going with this, and what current things have been talked about as far as Medicare for All goes. So it gives great context for the resolution, hits all of the main arguments. It's very comprehensive, good evidence in there, and good evidence outside of the Coolidge Packet. So for anyone looking for resources, that is the first place to go, and we will be sure to link that in the description. If you want to email us with any hate mail or non-hate mail, you can do so at whatstherez.gmail.com. That's W-H-A-T-S-T-H-E-R-E-S at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Reddit at whatstherez underscore, or check out our website. That's www.whatstherez.com. For any current episodes, previous episodes, all of them are stored there. And until next time, work hard, speak well, and seek the truth.